Isaiah 44, 9 through 11, and 18 through 23. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, and they shall be put to shame together. They know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say. Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it into an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself. Or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Good morning, church. Hope you were blessed today. It's so awesome to be able to gather together as God's people and uh, to lift up his name and open up his word and and hear from him. I just want to thank you for being here with us this morning. If you could turn on your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Isaiah chapter 44. That's where we're going to be uh, coming from this morning in our teaching. Uh, and I want to I want to thank Art for uh, for praying for me and and my wife and, and our kids this morning. It is uh, just a blessing to be have a, a brother be able to to pray for us and and we need it. Trust me, we need it. Uh, if, if you don't know, my my wife and I we have five wonderful children. We had a couple birthdays this week as well. Even my, my little precious Evie, my only daughter, turned seven years old. I'm going to tell her that she can't grow any older than that. She's, she's got to stay right there, seven years old. But us being gluttons for punishment, we, we didn't think five was enough. So uh, about a month ago, we, we brought in an international student from, from Coal Valley uh, School to come and stay with us as well. A 13-year-old uh, student from China is now living with us too. And it's a blessing to have him a part of our family. But uh, in, in China, I think they they like their food a little bit more spicy than what we like it here in America for some reason. And, uh, you know, we sit down and we like to have our, our food that we have. We sit down and have chicken and noodles and things like that. And and he, he goes and sees what he's in front of him. And he goes to the refrigerator and he grabs his, his jar of, of chili paste takes a big spoonful of it, sticks it in there, mixes it around, has a couple tastes, sticks it a little bit more in there, mixes it around, has another taste of it. And I'm sitting there looking at him and watching him do that. He's like, you do it too. And I'm like, okay, let's do this. So now we, we sit down at the dinner table right next to each other and we got this thing. We say, challenge. 
all right, who can handle it the hottest now? So we're pulling out the Frank's hot sauce. We're pulling out the chili paste and we're throwing it on about everything that we eat to see who can handle it the hottest. And uh, here in this passage that, that, that we're with this morning in the word, this is what God is trying to do. He is uh, speaking to the nation uh, of Israel. Nearly 100 years before they're going to be uh, carried away into captivity as Nebuchadnezzar is going to come from Babylon and, and, and defeat Jerusalem and destroy it and carry away the people into exile and have them go live in Babylon. And he's speaking to them because they're going to be leaving their, their culture. They're no longer going to have a temple where they can go and worship the Lord and offer sacrifices for sin and, and go and meet together with the nation for the festivals and the feasts and have a remembrance of what God has done for them in the past. It's going to be gone. And they're going to be surrounded by a culture that is filled with pagan and idolatrous worship. And, and God, speaking through Isaiah, knows that this is what his people are going to have to endure as they are in exile. And he's challenging the, the idols and the worship and the religion that they're going to have to endure and showing that he is more powerful than they are. And we, we need to go back and we kind of have to set the table here a little bit. My brother Larry did an amazing job kind of covering this passage this last week. And I, and I want to go back and, and, and really set the context of what we need to be studying here in, in Isaiah, starting in verse 9. So we're going to be going back to verse 6. And we're going to look at three things that God is saying about himself very quickly. In verse 6 it says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, he says, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me, there is no God. He is the everlasting God. He is the God who has no beginning and he is the God who is going to have no end. He did not come from anything else. He is the self-existing one. None come before, none will come after, none can compare to the Lord of Israel. And he wants to get that into the mind of his people. I am the only God. He says in verse 7, this is the beginning of the challenge. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I, God says, appointed an ancient people. He is the God who took the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And those 12 tribes that went into into Egypt and for 400 years sat under the slavery of Pharaoh doing his work building that nation and God sent Moses the redeemer and brought them out cursing the nation, the most powerful nation that existed on the face of the earth of that time. God destroyed 
and brought them out. A people, a nation that was in slavery, took them through the Red Sea and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And eventually they came into the land, the promised land, and established them as a kingdom. And so God is saying, remember, Israel, what I have done for you. You were nothing and I made you into a powerful nation. This is what I've done. So he says, I am the eternal God. I am the God who made you. And finally, verse 8, fear not nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declare it? You are my witnesses. He says, I am the God who knows everything that is going to happen. And I have told you what is going to happen. And I'm going to tell you more of what is going to be happening. I am in control, God says. And so finally, here's the challenge. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know of not any. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, as we come to this passage of Scripture, Lord, I would just pray that you would illuminate our minds, that you would help our eyes to see your word and your truth, and not only have an intellectual understanding of it, God, but that you would truly speak to our hearts. God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray it. Amen. So I grew up in this little town, Parma, about 40 miles uh, west of here. And I'm so thankful that we have a, a harvest party that we provide for, for the kids of our church and also the kids of our neighborhood. It's important for, for, for children to have a thing to do on Halloween night besides out there and causing problems. Because when I grew up, there really wasn't anything like that for me in my little town. Uh, especially when you're, you're a high schooler on Halloween night and you're really figuring out what you want to do. And uh, when you gather your friends around you and you're completely lost on, on how to spend your, your Halloween night, you, you come up with some pretty um, interesting ideas. So it was my senior year, uh, 1994, and uh, a group of friends of mine, we, we were kind of hanging out, figuring out what we were doing. And so we were driving around in this little blue Nissan truck. And there's another, another truck behind us as well. And, and we're kind of driving along. And, and we come up and we come alongside of this house. And what's in front of the houses on Halloween? Jack lanterns, right? And so we pop out of the truck. We go running up to the, to the, to the doorstep. We grab this pumpkin. We pick it up and we take it back to our car. And we throw it into the back of our truck. Man, that was exhilarating. Heart's pumping. We're having a great time. Let's do that again. So we go, drive around town, see some more pumpkins, lights are out. We think that the people are asleep. We grab it. We throw some more in there. And we continue going on and on, house to house to house. And we're figuring we're doing this a service, right? You know, everybody's asleep. We're, we're doing a, cl- a town pickup, removing all these pumpkins, making sure that everybody doesn't have to worry about it in the morning. And we're going along, and, event, and this is a little Nissan truck, and, and we just keep loading these pumpkins into the back of it. And eventually, we're getting 25, 30, and we started out, you know, sitting in the back of the truck, and eventually, these things are just filling this truck. We're laying on top of these pumpkins, holding on for dear life as we speed away from these houses, hoping that we do not roll out of this pack of this truck and go landing on the pavement. And eventually it got to the point where we were so full that we couldn't take any more. 
But us, being the genius teenagers that we were, really didn't think, you know, three steps ahead. After we grab these pumpkins, what are we going to do with them? Right? And so we're, we're brainstorming. What can we do? What can we do? And we had this brilliant idea. Let's take them up to the high school. So great. We did. We drove up to the high school and we're just unloading these things. Boom. Pumpkin after pumpkin. After pumpkin and we're piling them right in front of the front doors of the high school. And we are nearly complete. Almost got the loads out. And a car pulls up. And it's just not any car. It's a car with lights on it. Right? And it's just not any car with lights on it. It's the chief of police. And I've known this guy. I knew him since I was five years old. It's a small town. And he gets out of the car and says, what are you guys doing? And we said, you know what? We're driving around town. And we came in front of our high school. And we saw that someone had dumped all these pumpkins <laughs> in front of the high school. And we were just astonished and ashamed that somebody would actually do that to our school. So we want to clean it up. So we started putting these things back into the truck. And, and we're, we get about almost all the way done. And then my friend Matt says, you know what, guys? No, it would be a great idea if we took the pumpkins out of the truck and set them up and made it look really nice. And so we start doing that. We unload these pumpkins again and we're trying to find the lids that make it work and we're looking for candles to stick inside of it. And we eventually get all these pumpkins lined up right here with the chief of police watching us do this the whole time. And we get to the point where they look great and, and we're like, well, this, this is missing something. It's, there's some candles lit. So we, we look at, does anybody have a lighter? Does anybody have a lighter all that we can do this with? And none of us had a lighter except for one of us. Chief of police <laughs> had his cigarette lighter and he gave it to us and we lit all those candles and we drove away and went home, went to bed, went to school the next day. And eventually you heard over the intercom, can we have Jim Brown, Brandon Walker, Ed Hopkins, da, 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 da. can you please come to the office? Because apparently when the police showed up the next morning to start their, their duties on November 1st, they, their answering machine was full uh, of reports of people driving around in a blue Nissan pickup truck <laughs> stealing their pumpkins. And um, apparently moms really get upset when their kids wake up in the morning and they walk out the front door and the, the pumpkin that these children had invested so much time and love, for, love and effort into is missing. Hell hath no fury. Oh boy, do that to a mom and her kids missing her pumpkins. They, they were screaming mad. So we had to write an art, you know, apology in the paper and we had to clean up all the pumpkins and everything. But we, we think like, as a teenager, we're like, what are they so upset about? It's a squash. <laughs> it is merely a pumpkin that you just took and ripped all the seeds out of. And in three days, it's going to be wilted, moldy, and nasty. Who 
really cares? Now I understand. I've got five kids. I get it. But, but as a child, we can understand how a kid can put so much uh, attachment into something that is just going to go away. It's going to get thrown in the trash and isn't going to be anymore. But as we, as God's people, why is it that when it comes to our lives and, and trusting the Lord for, for his guidance, his direction, his leading in our lives, why is it that we're drawn away to try and, and give our trust to things that aren't from him? Why is it that, that we seek to, to find the answers within ourself? Why is it that we seek to find the answers in stuff? Maybe, you know, having a, a house, maybe a house, a bigger house, a nicer house will make, make my life better. A nicer car will make my life, life better. A, a, a better job, a success will make everything okay. Why do we look to just satisfaction, fun, pleasure? Why do we go towards those things to find meaning and purpose in our life when everything we could find to fulfill what God wants for us is found in him? And this is what Isaiah is trying to get across to his people as they are going to live in a culture that is constantly going to try to draw them away from the Lord. And here as we begin this passage, it's almost as if we need to have uh, some theme music going, you know, uh, from, from law and order. Remember, you hear that song in your head? Dun, 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 dun. You know, it's been around for like 30 years. They still make shows and it's still the same, same theme song. And the reason why I say that, because God right here is going to put the idolatry of the Babylonians on trial for the whole world to see. He's going to put them on trial and in verses 9 through 11 is going to be his opening statement. You know what those are, right? Where the lawyer gets up, stands in front of the jury and lays out what the case is going to be against the offender. And in verse 9 it says, All who fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in don't profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. He's saying, if you take a look at what they made, these idol makers, look at what they made. What do they actually do? What do they actually accomplish? And it is absolutely nothing. The products they made are completely and totally unprofitable. For you, they may be making, getting rich off of them, but for you, they can do nothing completely and totally unprofitable. And to go along with the theme of the trial, he says, these things are going to be the witnesses. These idols that these make idol makers make, these are the witnesses and they're going to be absolutely worthless because when we bring the whole plethora of every idol that has ever been made in the history of the world and we lay it down in front of an almighty God, they are going to be shown to be totally worthless. 
Verse 10, who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions, the companions he's speaking about are those idols, shall be put to shame. And the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them all stand forth. And when they stand before God, they shall be terrified. And they shall be put to shame together. And it happened. A few years down the road, an idol, probably one of the biggest idols that has ever been made, was completely and totally put to shame. If you remember, Daniel speaks of a, a vision, a, a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had. And he tells him of this, this magnificent statue whose head was made of gold and its chest was of silver and its, and its torso was bronze and its legs of iron, its feet of, of clay and iron as well. And, and Nebuchadnezzar takes this vision that Daniel told him about and he says, I'm going to make an idol out of that. And so he fashions this enormous statue in honor of him, the God King Nebuchadnezzar. And he demands that the entire empire, when the music plays, bow down fall down on their face before this idol and worship it. And there are three Hebrews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refuse. Refuse to follow the command of the king. And it angers the king. And he's saying, no one, no one disobeys me. So he takes those three. And you remember, right, he throws them into the furnace that was probably the same furnace that they used to melt the iron down to make this monstrosity. And they're standing in there and he looks and the, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're not consumed. And not only is it those three in there, there's one, the Bible says, that looks like the son of God. And that Jesus Christ saves those three. And honors them for their commitment to the true God of heaven. And Nebuchadnezzar is humbled. The, the, the king who thought he was powerful, all-powerful king, has to, has to make a decree in front of the entire empire saying that anyone, anyone who speaks anything bad of the God of heaven, the God of the Hebrews, the God of Israel, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if anyone speaks poorly of them, they shall be put to death. Nebuchadnezzar is shamed. His idol is shamed. So that is the opening statement. And there we come to the indicted verse 12 first we speak of the iron smith he takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals he fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm can you imagine this in your mind right now the man in in, in the foundry who's working in this hot environment where he has to deal with with heavy metals and he takes those and he takes the hammer and he's pounding away on this metal to form it and shape it and to make it strong so that, so that he can make his idol. In my mind right now, I, I'm imagining this really ripped, like the rock, right? Big old muscles, sweat pouring down him, 
kind of the, a physical specimen of strength who is able to be stronger than some of the hardest substances on earth and form it and shape it into what he wants. And what does he do? This, this physical specimen, what happens to him after he works on his craft? It says he becomes hungry and his strength fails because he, if he doesn't eat, he, he loses his strength. And he drinks no water and he becomes faint. And then logically, wouldn't you think the, 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 the creator is somehow stronger and more powerful than the thing that they create? And yet he's saying, this man, he becomes tired and weak and you're going to trust in his product? How is that to deliver you? When you have a God in heaven who does not grow tired, who does not grow faint, who does not sleep and is constantly keeping watch over you. The physical, the strong, the strength, it's going to fail. But it's only God in heaven who will continue to be able to sustain. And after, after the, the strong ironsmith, we come to the carpenter. Right? It says he stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into a figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. I'm fascinated by people who are able to do stuff with wood. I was able to, last weekend, went to the, the woodcraft store over there on or- Overland where it has about everything you could ever want to do whatever you want with wood. It's a fascinating store to go into. And right near the, the counter there, there was a man with a lathe and it's, the wood is spinning and he's taking his, his tools and he's going to, to town on this thing. And he's just shaping and forming this piece of wood. And I'm mesmerized by it. It's fascinating the, the thing that he's able to do with his hands. For, for you people who are in construction, for those of you who are in carpentry, I tip my hat to you. Because for me, I am the worst carpenter in the world. I am terrible. Like, if you want me to build something for you, it's going to look like Dr. Seuss went, went to town on it. It's going to be crooked, and it, it's terrible. Because it takes so much skill and so much knowledge to take these, these chunks of wood and to make them into something else. A lot, so much intelligence goes into it. So much skill, so much craft to do it. But look at, look at what he's working with. It says... In verse 14, he cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then you see, he's saying they go to the forest and they find this tree they had nothing to do with. And it is actually a tree that is rained and rained on and nourished by by God himself. God's the one who gives it what it needs to grow. And they take it, and they take a saw to it, and they chop it down. They take this mighty tree, and they just fell it. And he goes on from there, they take this tree, and says, Then it becomes, in verse 15, fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles fire and bakes bread. And he also makes a god and worships it. 
He makes an, an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. Verse 17. And the rest of it he makes into a god and his idol. And he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. You take this block of wood. And, and you chop it down to the size of what you need. You take what you, what is left over and you, and you cut it up into pieces so that you can, you can throw it into the fire so when it's cold outside, you can make yourself warm. And then when you're, you're done carving away on this block of wood to make something that looks like a man, you're going to take and you're going to sweep up the floor. You're going to take those chips and you're going to throw it into another fire and you're going to bake bread over it. And you're going to take a chunk of meat and you're going to turn it over it. So you're going to burn up this chunk of wood and whatever's left over, you're going to say, now this is my God. This is what I'm going to fall down. And I believe that this chunk of wood, that half of it I just threw into the fire, I'm going to use to deliver me. And he said, You can hear the contempt in Isaiah's voice as he's saying this. This is ridiculous. It is absolutely ridiculous that you would put your trust in something like this. So finally, we come to the verdict. Verse 19. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? And in verse 20, I believe we, we find three things. Three things that speak to the needs of our soul, which these idols in no way fulfill in these people's lives and there's no way that other than jesus christ will we find fulfillment for these areas but by him and whatever it may be whether it is your work whether it is your family whether it is your fun whatever it may be if you try to find your purpose and meaning within these things you are going to fall dreadfully short the first one is it says he feeds on ashes feeds on ashes. But it just says, it says that he's just made bread and he's made meat. It seems like to, to me, his stomach would be full, but he's not speaking of his stomach. He's speaking of his soul. And he's saying that he is spiritually malnourished. There is nothing that is going to come from these things that is going to cause you to have strength to endure and find meaning and find purpose that is going to feed your soul so that when you are confronted with the struggles and the challenges of life, they're going to be empty if you look to these idols because they have no nourishment. It's almost like eating a burnt piece of bread. It's going to leave a nasty taste in your mouth and it's going to give you nothing for strength and endurance. But if you remember what Jesus says, right? When he's tempted by the devil devil says, hey, you're hungry. Take these stones, turn them into bread. And Jesus says, no, because man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We need God's word 
We need his spirit to teach us his word, to take those things that we find in the scripture and to fill our soul with strength so that we can have strength for the day. So we need spiritual nourishment. What else do we need? We need truth. We need truth. It says that a deluded, another word for deluded may be deceived. A deceived heart has led him astray. He's looking for answers. He's looking for meaning. He's looking for for something that is going to guide him for the path that he should walk down in his life. And he can find no good way to go from these chunks of wood and from these idols of metal. We need truth. We need guidance. We need to know that what God's will is for us. He is the one who guides. He is the one who leads. He is the one who takes us. And finally, we need a deliverer from sin. Finally, it says, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? He needs a deliverer and he's not going to find it in that. And we try to find it within ourselves. We try to find it within our culture. We're doomed. Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter seven? He says, I I, I struggle with sin and the sin that I, I don't want to do. I can't help but just continue on to do it. No matter how hard I try, this sin just keeps grabbing me and forcing me into just following it. And, and then there's things that I know that I ought to do. The things that I, I, I believe that is the right way to go. And I, and I make a purpose and I choose to do it. And then I fall short so many times. I can't do it. I'm in bondage to this sin. But he says, what is going to rescue me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, because through him we can be more than conquerors. So what is it? What does God say that we need in our lives from him so that we can be successful in our walk with him? Verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. He's saying, remember, Israel, I made you with a purpose. I have given you meaning in your life. I've given you a path to follow. I have formed you. I have made you. I have created you. And we, as God's people, he has formed us and he has known us from the womb so that we can walk and live for him. He has made us new with his spirit so that we can honor and serve him. I'll close with this. In Michigan, in during the Depression, there was a, a teacher, an English teacher. His name was uh, Donald Crouch. And, and Donald Crouch uh, had this student, a 14-year-old student, whose name was Jimmy. I like that name. His name was Jimmy. And Jimmy was very shy, sat in the back of the class. He was a black, a black kid. And he sat in the back of the class, and he never spoke up, 
never raised his hands to answer a question, always was just very timid. Until the subject of poetry would come up. And when poetry would come up, he would just light up and he'd be very engaged. But you could tell in his eyes that he was just loving what he was going on in the classroom, but he still wouldn't say anything. And so eventually the the teacher confronted Jimmy and he said, Jim, Jimmy, why aren't you engaging? And when he was having a conversation with him, he learned that Jimmy had a horrible stutter. And so he was just ashamed to be able to speak out in front of class, even though that maybe he wanted to say something, he just refused to do it. And so there was one time in the middle of winter that he gave the, the teacher gave the assignment and he said he wanted the whole class to write a poem on something that was very precious to them. And in, in during the depression, the, they would, the government would bring up cases of, of grapefruit to, to the people in, in Michigan so that, they could have, you know, so they wouldn't become sick with scurvy, you know, and they needed that vitamin C. And so they, he, he, his family, his poor family got a box of grapefruit and it was some of the, the best fruit that he had ever eaten in his entire life. And so Jimmy wrote a poem called Ode to Grapefruit. And it was one of the best poems that, that the teacher had ever read by a student. And so he, he, he took Jimmy and he challenged him. He, he said, you know, there are some, some poems in here that are pretty good. There are some poems that are pretty bad. But there is one. There was one that's really great. And Jimmy, I want you to come up front to the class and I want you to read your poem. And Jimmy refused. He's like, I'm not doing it. He said, well, Jimmy, the reason I want you to come up here because this poem is so good that I don't think you actually wrote it. I think you stole it. And this made him mad. Made him mad and... He came up front showing to prove this teacher wrong. He got his ode to grapefruit poem. He read it in front of it and it was beautiful. Not a stutter with this deep, booming voice. Jimmy read his poem and this unlocked in him a passion for performance. And so Jimmy, from that point on, he joined the debate team and he joined the drama club. And he, he graduated from high school and he went on to, to, to start performing in the arts. And eventually he, he, he won an Emmy. And eventually he won an Oscar. And Jimmy landed this role. And it was a voice role. And one of the lines in one of the movies that he spoke was taken on a city that floated in the clouds. And he reaches out his hand and he says, Luke, I'm your father. It was James Earl Jones, the voice of Darth Vader. That teacher unlocked within him the potential that was always there. And we, if we put our trust into the everlasting God, and if we put our trust in the God who has taken you and called you out of darkness into a marvelous light through the salvation that we find through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we put our trust in his word because we know that he knows the end from the beginning. And we know that there is nothing that can take us from his hand because he has promised it. If we take that trust and we devote our lives to him, 
he will be able to make you a light in the darkness. And he will unlock the potential that he has made in you as his image bearer and the, the receiver of his Holy Spirit. It's to do marvelous things for his name. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, Lord, I just praise you for your word. I praise you, God, that we know that you are a God in heaven who loves us and is powerful and does never, ever takes his eyes off of us. And you love us and you are seeking us to come and follow you. And so, God, we as a church and we as individuals, we commit that to you today. We commit our lives to you, Lord, and we pray that, God, you will use us to change this world for Christ. It's in his name we ask it. Amen.